He said to them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Why did Jesus live? And if your go-to answer to that question is so that he could die, isn't that sort of a limited sort of perspective of his life? The old <coughs> creeds used to highlight his, his birth, the incarnation, which in that we see something of his divinity and his supernatural coming into this world. But then they would often kind of jump from that moment and then skip over into his death and how his death brought us redemption and this reconciliation between God and man. Certainly those two are important, but why did he live? Another question you can ask, <coughs> sort of similar, is what is the point of your faith beyond dying and going to see Jesus someday? Throughout human history, throughout the church's history, we have often found ourselves falling short of our calling in this world because what we find is that we emphasize the hereafter with no context to the here and now. And so, so often, if that is our perspective, if there is no purpose to the now, it says our friend this weekend said, fire insurance, you put it in the back pocket, hope for someday to use it when you die. And in the meantime, there really is no relevance to it in your life. Why do you live for God? <clears throat> what is the point of your faith? More than just why did Jesus live, the question becomes why do we live? The two are connected. What was Jesus' central message when he came to the earth? Some people kind of default to, ask, to answer that question. They think, well, uh, probably salvation. However, if you look, that is not the central message of his, of his ministry. Certainly that is a component of what he's up to. But in the teaching of his ministry, it wasn't redemption. It wasn't Love, the great teacher of love in humanity's history, was that was not his central message, although that was certainly part of it. There was something other that he was teaching. What was the core of what he was teaching and preaching and doing and proclaiming in his ministry? And commentators have often highlighted that what's interesting is it's quite simply encapsulated in this concept. The kingdom of God is here. What does that mean? The kingdom of God is here. What is the kingdom of God about? That Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom of God is coming into the world, and he was setting himself up as a king of this kingdom to start a new work of God in the world, a new kingdom, a new rulership. You know, we're about to walk into, into election season again, and I'm sure all of us are super excited not to be asked again whether or not we have registered to vote, and with our current addresses. But, <clears throat> but whenever you're voting, you're asking the question, what is, this, what is this party, what is this politician, what is this soon-to-be desirous leader of our country about? What is their platform? What are they about? And when Jesus said, the kingdom of God is here, what was his platform? What was he proclaiming to the world? Well, 
that's a little bit of what I want to look at tonight. And we're excited. Coming again into this political season, you know, we're, we're like, okay, what is, how are we going to change the world? You know, is, you know, are they going to change anything? Are they going to do anything? And maybe it's just going to be the same old routine. And yet when Jesus came into the world, everything changed after that. Everything would change with this proclamation. The, the most influential character in human history was about to say, this is what God is up to in the world. And this is a pretty interesting question. That there was a king coming into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is about a king. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. Um, and that he was about something in this world. The kingdom of God was about a work that had yet to be done. And that that work was a, a work of redemption, of reconciliation, to bring humanity back to its original intent, to restore something that had been lost, to bring back a sense of purpose to our, to our life and to our life here and now in our faith. And if we don't catch that idea of what is our purpose, we lose the whole sense of what are we doing here in this life until we die and see Christ face to face. So I want to look a little bit at that. But you know, in our world today, <clears throat> the idea of purpose is, is largely being lost or, or oftentimes shattering into a million irrelevant pieces as we're wrestling with the concept of how do we find purpose without God. There was a professor... <clears throat> A while ago, Dr. L.D. Rue, who, when addressing the American Academy of, <clears throat> of the Academics of Science, said this, the lesson of the past two centuries, being an atheist himself, the lesson of the past two centuries is that the intellectual and moral relativism uh, is profoundly the case, that everything is relative. He says that the consequence of this realization is that the quest for self fulfillment and the quest for social coherence fall apart. But basically meaning like society can't work together with your pursuit of happiness. Each person chooses his own set of values and meaning. So what are we to choose? Rue says there is on one hand the madhouse option. We just pursue self-fulfillment regardless of social coherence. Basically saying whatever feels good, do. Just do whatever gives you a sense of happiness no matter the consequence to society or the people around you. On the other hand, there is the totalitarian option. None of us like that. If we understand history from the last 200 years, the totalitarian option is the one where the government regulates our sense of social coherence by force. And in that place, we've often seen the abuse and the loss of life as a result. On the other hand... Um, there is only one other option, he says. If we are to avoid these two options, he says, then we have no choice but to embrace some noble lie that will inspire us to live beyond self-interests and so voluntarily achieve social coherence. Far from Rue trying to draw us away from reality into a deception, because that is the only way that he can say reality can live. Without God, there is no meaning, there is no purpose, and so we have to deceive ourselves as if there were some to keep society running and to keep us focused in our life. But far from Rue, who in his perspective without God says there's no way to live in reality and actually live within the tenets of what reality says, God, Jesus, says the exact opposite. He says there's a reality that's been lost. And if we would reclaim that reality, we would find, again, purpose in our life. 
not a noble lie, but a, but a deceptive, destructive lie that we are living in. And Jesus came to bring light into the world. And his answer is he is fighting to draw us back to a deeper reality, a deeper truth, not further from truth or reality, through our faith. One that includes purpose and meaning and value beyond what we could ever imagine to earn or achieve. A purpose that continues into eternity. That motivates us in the here and now with a passion that is worth living for. And a central attribute of this purpose is what Jesus means when he says peacemaking. So I want to look at that just for a little bit of time that I get tonight. Blessing in the kingdom of God is given to those who have this peace who make this peace their agenda to extend into the world. And blessed are they because they will be called children of God. Another way you can break this down, if you're taking notes tonight, we're going to look at the nature, the expression, and the, and the results of this peace. The nature, the expression, and the results of this peace that Jesus is talking about. So first off tonight, the nature of this peace. For me to do justice to this idea, what is this peace that Jesus is talking about, I am going to have to do a 10,000-foot fly-by overview of the entire Bible. So get ready, strap in, yeah. buckle your seatbelts. I'm going from Genesis to Revelation. Ready? Here we go. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1, God speaks. You know, in the time of Socrates, they believed that, that the world was eternal from never beginning to never ending, that it was always there. And yet in modern uh, cosmology, they found that there was actually a beginning to the universe, that things began, you know, the Jewish, the ancient Jewish mystics were saying that for, for thousands of years, but then all of a sudden we're finding it's actually true that God spoke, that light exploded into reality, that somehow this creative God designed the universe in whatever form and fashion we still are trying to uncover and understand, but that he created. And in that creation, he created this little speck of dust amongst the vastness of space, and on that speck of dust, he began to do a unique work. And he began to work biology into the creation. He started to create plants and animals and all kinds of living things. And in the story of Genesis 1, in verse 26, it goes like this. And we have some of this up on the screen. Some of it you can write down or just take note of it uh, <coughs> or follow along with me. But I'm going to kind of fly through some of these things to get to this point. But in verse 26, he says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful. My team definitely have taken that to heart this year. We keep having kids. And increase in number. <laughs> Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so we see this story begin with God giving humanity this opportunity to, to join with him in this work. Now, we follow along Genesis, Genesis 2, take the next page over, or the next scroll over, and in Genesis 2, in verse 8, God says in this creation, he's going to create a garden. And what does it say in verse 8? Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. The, God, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were 
pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. The Genesis story is a story of God creating a space, a place, a garden. It's interesting that it's not the whole world, but a garden, a, a cell within creation that is, that is this place of, of beauty, of, of his creation being expressed, his creative nature flowing, where shalom, where peace is expressed. You see in the garden, we see that, that Adam and Eve are ruling over this garden, that they're, that they're cultivating it and they're growing it, that they're a part of it, and that they have this sense of, of peace with one another, that there's this, this community and this unity that, you know, at one point it says that they were naked and unashamed. And, you know, sometimes the guys in the outpost take that a little too literally. But, but we are naked and unashamed. And there, there was absolutely nothing about their relationship that was, that was hindering them. That they were completely vulnerable, completely real, and authentic and real in their relationship with one another. And out of that, there was also this deep connection with their God. That God would come to them and, and walk with them in the cool of the evening. And we think that actually that was probably Jesus because Scripture seems to suggest that only the manifest presence of God was Jesus whenever God expressed himself. And so Jesus seems to be showing up in the garden story. Before the incarnation, he was incarnating himself. That was always the way he worked, that he was connecting into the physical. And we were with him. And there was this deep sense of harmony and beauty and law and order that was, that was expressed in the Genesis story. But then, Adam and Eve, by some very bad dietary choices, decided to break that beauty. And, they, and God had to send them out of the garden. Really, they walked away because what they said is, God, we don't want, we want to do our own thing. We want, to, we want to have our own way. And so they broke that shalom, that peace, that rest in the Lord. And the rest of the story of the Bible would be God trying to bring them back to that place, back to the garden. In Isaiah, years and years later, the prophet would see what God was up to. He would say in chapter 51, Look to Abram, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him, for the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her wasted places. He will make her wilderness like Eden. God's bringing back even the creation under Israel, trying to bring it back to Eden, back to this place where he can rule and reign. And her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I make my justice rest in the light of the people's. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arm will judge the peoples. Here is, here is God articulating basically this, this overview of, of the story of Israel, that God said, okay, what are we going to do? So instead of a garden, we're going to start with a people group, a nation, a society. And there's this man, Abram, later called Abraham, and God says, hey, leave your family, leave your family's gods, follow me, the one true creator. And Abraham says, okay, and he goes... And God begins to create in Abraham a nation. And the goal wasn't the nation, but that the nation was going to be, again, a place, a cell within the larger world where God's 
peace, his rest, his law and order and beauty could be expressed. And from that, the nations of the world might know and see God. A place where God's presence could draw close. And we see these these foreshadowings of the incarnation in the temple where God's presence would rest and reside in proximity to man. But, at, but the story of Israel is again the story of the world running from God, saying we want to do our own thing. And time and time again, Israel would fall short of their calling. But Jesus, but God, always had a plan, and that plan included, was always with Jesus at the front and center, and Isaiah actually, again, using him, would say in Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. On a side note, it's really fascinating. Isaiah, I believe Isaiah has the most parchment in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Like, it was, it was, deep, it was heavily used uh, in the ancient Jewish mind, but but here, you actually notice there's actually a, a strong inf- implication to the Trinity right there. You see that? That the Messiah would be called God, that he'd be called wonderful. Some of you guys say wonderful counselor in your translation, which is what Jesus would articulate as the expression of the Holy Spirit, that he would be your counselor. And then he says, everlasting father. Well, that was the only a word that would be used for the concept of, of the Shekinah glory, the presence of God that, was, that w- Moses could not see they could not come face to face with. And then he says, Prince of Peace, which is where Jesus comes into the picture, bringing humanity's redemption back into that place. But he says, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice for that time forward, ever, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will proclaim this. And this, you know, they really had a hard time with this. This is sort of like, you know, today, if you're into, like, theology discussions, you may be, like, young earth, old earth, um, you know, Calvinism, Arminian. Like, like, they didn't know what to do with this because what this suggests is this, that God was going to become king. And how is that even possible? How is that even possible that God was going to rule on the throne of David and that all the world was going to be under his dominion once again. And so we see in this account that God is bring, trying to bring humanity back to this place, that the Prince of Peace was going to come and bring back peace through his kingship, through the order of his life. And we see that, I'm not going to go to that passage, but if you read in the Gospels the stories of Jesus, it's back in a garden that Jesus decides to make that commitment once again to die so that we would experience peace with God and have that potential. In the Garden of Gethsemane, back in the garden, he says, I am going to do this work and I'm going to bring you back to this place, back to the garden. And then in the end of the Bible, in Revelation in 22, we're going all the way up to there because it's not over. It's not done. We haven't fully gone into the garden, so to speak, in that way. But in Revelation 22, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great streets of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are on 
are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So what I fly, I'm flying through a lot of scripture here, and I hope you guys are keeping track. I mean, this is a lot more than I typically would go through, and so I'm flying by a lot of questions. People are like, I kind of have a question about that. Yeah, I don't know. Like, is this a living, is this... <laughs> Is this a metaphor or is this like literal? Personally, I think the, the Bible uses living metaphor a lot. So I'm not, it wouldn't be surprising to me that this is actually a literal thing God creates, but it's, it's physically representing. You ever ask the question, why did God create the physical? Probably not. That's just like, you know, <laughs> just questions for me late at night. I'm like, huh, I wonder why. You know, like, you know, he's a spiritual being. Why did he create the physical? Because the physical helps us. We can taste it. We can see it. We can experience it. It's textile. It helps us understand spiritual realities that would be hard for us to conceptualize without it. And so in some way, God is saying, I am bringing you back to the garden. And that garden represents this place of peace and rest with the Lord. Now, people often say, I love that idea. I love the idea that God is fighting for peace in the world. And unless you are a follower of Christ, you would be wrong. Because you have to ask the question, how is he doing it? How is he going about this work? And the answer in the biblical narrative, you know, people often in the world say, we find peace in the world by live and let live. But in the biblical narrative, that's how we got to this place. It's Adam and Eve saying, God, we're just going to do our thing. You can do yours. And here we are. See, the, the biblical narrative isn't that way. It's by saying it has to do with rights. And we don't like that word very much when it comes in this context. See, every relationship has rules to it. It's just, that's natural. I have a friend who says the laws of the kingdom of God make perfect sense. The Ten Commandments or whatever thing you want to look at, you know, go through Leviticus or whatever. Everything makes sense if you understand it as rules of relationship. That God's like, hey, you want to hang out with me? You want to love me? You want to get to know me? This, this is what I like. This is what I don't like. This is how you express love to me. That there are always rules to every relationship. My, my wife, I love my wife. I respect her. She's an incredible woman of God. And, and so I, I say that if, if I use just an extreme case here just to highlight my point, if I had an affair... Yeah, instantly, instantly everybody's like, you scoundrel. You know, like, how could you? Yeah, yeah, and you should. Why do you react that way? Live and let live. What if I had an affair and then she found out about it? She came up and confronted me about it, said, how could you do this? I said, live and let live. I didn't hurt you. See, you're like, you are such a mean, you know, like, you know, there's something in you that gets this point, don't you? There are rules to relationship, and I broke one, didn't I? Uh, well, no, I have not. I have not. I have not. We are recorded. My mom's going to call me next week. Are you? No. no, obviously not. So, but you get it, don't you? There are rules to relationship. And, and every relationship demands those kind of rules. You know, the laws of the kingdom of God aren't legalistic. It's like, do this for morality's sake. It's do this for relationship's sake. These, that morality is for the sake of relationship, not separate from the concept. That it's 
a servant to that, the rules of relationship. And when we come to God, what, is, what are we talking about? We're talking about a king. But what are the rules to a king? What are the rules? What, do we, what rights does he have? Winky Prattney makes this comment once. He says, it's well-intended, and the heart of it is right, but he says, we make a mistake when we come to the Lord and we say, God, I make you the Lord of my life. He said, he's already the Lord. You're just choosing not to be a rebel. In the end of Matthew, it actually says, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's already mine. I'm already a king. In the first century, when somebody would become a new ruler, new authority, new king or, or emperor or something like that, there would be a, it would be a proclamation that would go out to all of their subjects. It would be called a gospel message. Good news. And sometimes it was good news. Sometimes it wasn't so good news to those people. But there was this proclamation, this guy is now in charge. So get on board or rebel, but this is your reality. The kingdom of God is not, hey, choose whether or not Jesus is king. It's saying choose or not to live in reality of his kingship in your life. And so we come to this place. These are the rules of relationship. That when we come to God, and we don't know if we love that sometimes. You don't make him Lord of your life. You recognize he is already. And so Jesus says, would you love me? I want to have a relationship with you. He calls us his bride. And he says, I will have not just kingship, but I also want to have that kind of deep, intimate relationship with you. It's both. But you know that whenever the Bible says uh, Savior, we like Savior. We get Savior. Saving me from something that I can't, you know, that I need help with, I get that. That's good. But King, I don't know about that. Because that suggests he has rights. And in the Bible, it says, it says Savior relating to God a couple hundred times. I forget exactly off the top of my head how many times. There's only three times of those times it says Savior. There's only three times that it doesn't also say Lord. And those three times, it's, it's deeply inferred, so deeply that it doesn't even have to, that the writers don't even have to say it, that it's just understood. Throughout the Bible, there's always this understanding that the two are interconnected. And what I love about this idea is, is partially this. One of the implications to this idea is this, that when, when God is the Lord of my life and the Savior of my soul, then everything becomes spiritual. And I was talking with Dan, I think a couple other guys you know, here recently, we were talking about just that idea, like everything is spiritual. Everything can be spiritual. Sometimes we delineate that, don't we? It's like, well, this is the physical, right? You know, like, hey, well, I'm not outpost, so I'm, it's, you know, this is my time with God. This is the spiritual side of me, right? Like, the worship team's really jamming, so maybe I might have raised my hand, you know? So, like, I'm really feeling it now, right? You know, I'm spiritual. <laughs> this is my spiritual time. But after outpost is over, after large group is done, I'm going to the library, <clears throat> nerd, and um, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Yeah, if you don't get it, don't worry, it's an inside joke. Okay, but... <laughs> Not very inside, though. Um, if when you go to the library, you do your calculus homework, and you're like, I left God back there, and now I'm doing this instead. Now I'm doing this instead. And, 
and we delineate those two. But if God is Lord of all, of creation, of nature, of the physical, of the spiritual, of the intellectual, of the emotional, how are we delineating those? Isn't he the Lord of it all? And so we all of a sudden realize we, now sometimes we can try to make everything non-spiritual into something spiritual by, by making it into like a, an evangelistic effort or something like that. We try to like make it into that. And that's, that's good. That's not bad. But, but when God gave Adam and Eve the garden, he said, tend the garden. And this is not in some way a separation from my presence. That you can do calculus and serve the Lord and worship the Lord. That the two become one. That the two realities, that, that in Revelation when it talks about that, that God, you know how strange that is? God is actually on the earth. Do you guys realize that? That, that his authority, his rulership, heaven, isn't somewhere else. It's here. How wild is that? And he begins to infuse his rulership, his kingdom, the, his dominion into our reality. He makes the secular sacred. How do we know if we're living in that peace? Well, one way is, you know, I was, I was reading this book by uh, Watchman Nee uh, recently, and he, he makes this comment. Actually, you know what? I should have done this before. Hold on. I'm going to totally buzz. Close your ears. <laughs> oh, look at that. I told the staff before this, my goal, one of my goals for this year was to actually get through a whole sermon with my headset on. Um, Maybe tonight's the night, huh? But the release of the Spirit, here, watch me, he makes this, he makes this coming. It's so good. I just have to share it with you. He says this. I'm going to kind of skip through a few things. He says, if we try to get the presence of God by directing our thoughts, then we are not consecrating. His presence seems to be lost whenever our thoughts are away from him. If we try to maintain God's presence with activity, then when the activity ceases, his presence ends. Once the outward man is broken, he's talking about just our, our psyche, our emotions, our thoughts, our body. One no longer needs to retreat Godward, for he is always in the presence of God. Not so with one whose outward man is still intact. After running after an errand, he needs to return, for he has assumed he has moved away from God. Even in doing the work of the Lord, he slips away from the one he serves. So it seems the best thing for him is not to make any move. Nevertheless, they that know God do not need to return, for they have never been away. They enjoy the presence of God when they set aside a day for prayer, and they enjoy the presence in much the same degree when they are busily engaged in the mental tasks of life. And I don't have time to get into all of that deeper sense of abiding with the Lord, but needless to say, there is this place where we come to. When even when our mind is distracted, our spirit is still in that place of submission and communion with God, that in everything we find, we're doing everything with God and for God. And I love how that means that everything is transformed through that. That we become resilient. Because no matter what happens in my life, I never lose my king. Good, bad, right, wrong. I get the career, I don't. I get the girl, I don't. Everything, I suddenly find I have this resilience in us, and we learn to enjoy these things in a deeper way because they're no longer lords of us, but submitted to our Lord. And in that, we can serve him and abide with him and love him. So, secondly, 
Don't worry, that first point was way longer than the rest. But <clears throat> secondly, everybody's like, I got to get to calculus homework. Um, <laughs> secondly, the expression of this peace is peacemaking. Our redemption starts in the garden, is transformed in the garden, and ends with a garden. And each point, God invites us to partner with him. You recognize that? At the beginning, in the garden, there was work. Work was not the curse. Work was cursed. All right, we sometimes mix those two. That at the very beginning, God said, hey, let, help me, partner with me. Take this cell, take this place of my beauty and my harmony and my law and my power and advance it into the rest of the world. The rest of the world doesn't have it yet. God could have created it that way. He didn't. He said, start here. I want you to take a part. Then we get to the story of Jesus, and we all kind of know probably this part. But Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said, the great commission. You know, commentators have, have highlighted in recent past how the two commissions were actually the same. Different contexts, but the same. Both were proclaiming in the garden into the world and in the redemption of the gospel into humanity the two were both saying the same thing. Take my beauty, take my shalom, take my peace, and take it to where it's not. Advance it into the world. And there is nothing more beautiful that we can find than when we get to help our friends walk into that place of peace, when their world is crashing down around them, when chaos is in their life, or when things are going really good and they find they're being enslaved by their passions and needs and desires of success or whatever it may be, that in every, every place when we come in and say, God has something greater, and we get to partner with him, that there is this deep sense of value and meaning. Sometimes we're like, God, I don't want to do that. Don't make me do that. Please, anything but that. Anything but talking about you. Nobody likes to talk about you. They're running. They're rebelling, Right? They don't want, I don't want to be that guy. We, we say, God, I don't want to. But you know what? God does this for a reason because there is great sense of joy in it. I don't have time to get into all of that, but it, this goes into eternity. So if you don't like responsibility, guess what? It's, it's, it's coming. And actually, it's actually, I don't have time to get into all that, but there's actually hints that Jesus gives that, that in the future kingdom, it's going to be so much more now, that this is like a training ground for us almost in learning how to partner with God. That at the end of Revelation, if you caught that, that they said that they will rule with him forever. Like, what are you talking about? Like, what is that? We don't even know. It's like so big, we don't even fully grasp. God gives us hints at it. Paul says, don't you realize you'll judge angels someday? Sometimes I want to yell at Paul. Like, no, I don't understand. What are you talking about? <laughs> what in the world are you talking about? But there is this, there's this sense responsibility is going to be for eternity. God is always saying, I want to partner with you. And there are deep implications to that. One is that things like your life matters. What you do matters. That when you get to partner with God and share your faith and talk about the Lord, you know, what you sacrifice for is what is a priority in your life. And it's like God's like kind of forcing the issue, like, hey, come on, I want, I, I want to be more, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little responsibility to kind of help you prioritize me in your life. Right? We say, God, you, know, you don't need me. And yet, you know, in, in my understanding of how I understand how the, the theology of Scripture, God in his sovereignty didn't have to do it this way, but in his choice to love us and to have him love him, he had to give us 
freedom to choose, to walk away or to pursue him. And in that freedom was, this, was also this sense. In Genesis, at the beginning, in Genesis 1, it says, you, I give you dominion over the earth to rule over the fish of the sea and all this kind of stuff. That, there, that actually what we do matters, that God limits himself in some way is what it seems to be saying to what, to what we're up to, which is why maybe prayer actually matters. You know, I don't even have close enough time to get into all that. So, but why do we pray? I mean, not just like, God, I love you, like, let's be friends, or let's, you know, you're my king, like, I'm submitting to you. That is true, and that is always, that, that relational side is always true. But why do we pray for the world? Why do we pray for our friends? Why does the Bible call us to intercede for things? Because, you know, sometimes we pray as if God doesn't know. Hey, God, guess what? You know, this person could use help. Oh, really? I'm sovereign. I'm, I'm everywhere. <laughs> I kind of, I knew, yeah. Or convincing a benevolent God to do the good thing, like as if he's not all good already. Hey, God, you really should. But actually, it seems as if, it seems as if God has said, until you give me freedom within his sovereignty, to give me freedom back, give me back what I have given you, until you've given me that, I'm not flowing. And we're this strange hybrid in creation, as far as we understand, the angelic doesn't seem to have any physical component, as far as we get it. But, but they're deeply spiritual. Certainly God is spirit without necessarily the physical. But my dog, Ranger, has a psyche, has emotions and a mind at some level. Uh, his emotions rule him more than his mind. But, and a body, but he is not spiritual. He is not eternal. That we are this strange hybrid between the two. That we are always meant to be the priests of creation the vessel, not in of ourselves anything powerful, but a vessel to allow God to flow his power and his beauty and his creation into the world. And from it that we could respond back and bring back the worship and the praise of creation to our God. That's why worship is powerful. Not just the singing, but the actual worship, that place where we start to commune with God and give him adoration and praise. That we were made for that that we are made to be the hybrid, the place where the two realities intersect, where the physical and the spiritual interconnect and tether to each other. Not like the Western mind where the two are far, but actually close together, as close as our abiding with the Lord. So the result of this piece is that you will be called children of God. Worship team, you can come back up, and, and we're going to get going into some worship. But, but the result is this, that we would be called children of God. And it's not saying so that if you actually, you know, <coughs> partner with me, then you can earn your salvation. What he's saying is if you will partner with me, you are expressing your salvation. You are expressing your identity. That before you became a follower of Christ, peace with God is fundamentally opposed to your identity. You're in rebellion to God. There is no peace to be found with him when you're in rebellion to him. But after saying, God, you are my Lord and my Savior, anything that is not peace with God is opposed to your identity. The anxiety that you feel, the stress that overwhelms you, the, the thing that keeps you from feeling his sense of rulership, authority, power, in your life. That thing is opposed.
opposed to your identity. And when we come to that place of really abiding, when we really are partnering with him in the work of bringing the garden into our reality, when we do that, we are stepping into our sonship or our daughtership, our childlike identity with the Lord, that we start to live in line with it and not in, opposed, in opposition to it. And in that place, we, the world will see us and look and say, that is someone who is really sold out to their God. That is someone who is a child of God. And the world would see us and recognize something is going on there. So let's stand tonight. And I don't have much of a response other than to say we're just going to jump back into worship. And right now we're going to express our purpose. To say in worship, and the words aren't even the thing that matters. The, you know, I love getting, you know, Dan playing on that guitar, but the, the, the chords aren't what matters. It's me saying, God, this is what you've done, and because of how much you've done, I am responding in worship to you. And everything I've seen in the world around me, maybe not even things I've experienced, but things that I've seen in my friends and in my world and how you've done so much in this world, I'm responding and I'm worshiping you, I'm praising you. And when we leave this place, then it's saying, God, I want to partner with you my friend who's going through a hard time or that guy that really needs to know you or that situation where I could just share your shalom into this world. God, help me partner with you today. Help me partner with you tomorrow. Because everything from homework to pizza caswell to worship, everything is spiritual. Amen? Let's worship.